I'm Dee Lauderdale, and this is the Playbook for Men podcast. Short answers to big questions on how to beat a man. Now, today is an episode I get to do one of my favorite things in the world, and that is to talk with a successful man. And my guest today is retired Marine Colonel Arthur Athens. Now, I'm not going to read his whole bio because it would take the entire hour. He is just a, a very accomplished uh, gentleman. I do want to read one part of it. He's a retired Marine Corps officer with significant command and staff assignments in all four Marine aircraft wings, an instructor tour with Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadron 1, that's the equivalent of Navy's Top Gun School, and also served as White House Fellow under President Reagan, Special Assistant to the NASA Administrator during the Space Shuttle Challenger accident, and was also the Commandant of the United States Merchant Marine Academy. Now, that's enough, but let me tell you the really amazing thing. He's the dad of 10 children. So, Art, welcome, my friend. Thank you. It's an honor to be here with you, D. So uh, I learned about you from a, uh, another friend of mine who is a command master chief in the Navy. And um, he told me uh, that I needed to go watch a YouTube video by this guy named Arthur Athens, that he is a leadership guru and was part of uh, at the U.S. Naval Academy as part of their leadership. And so I went and watched, and the, and the first one of yours that I watched was about leading through stories. And, and, I, and I watched it, and so I'm a former pastor and public speaker, so I like watching other really good speakers. And as good as your content is, your ability as a public speaker just drew me in, specifically that you gave a 45-minute speech without notes. Now, for the guys that are listening that don't like public speaking, the mere idea of speaking without notes makes their palms sweaty. So let's use that as an icebreaker. Talk to us about how you see giving a speech or how do you put it together? Well, I owe my dad a lot on that particular issue. Uh, my dad in his early life was an actor on Off-Broadway in New York. Uh, he then did some directing and producing for Off-Broadway. And uh, we lived in a fairly small house in New York uh, on Long Island outside of the city. And one of the things he did when a theater was closing down with a friend of his who owned it, uh, the friend gave my dad eight theater seats, spotlights, footlights. My dad built a small stage, curtain, the whole bit. He was very creative and, and quite a craftsman. So early on in my life, um, acting and being on a stage was part of what life within the Athens family was about. And, I, and the incident that I remember that probably was the beginning of learning how to speak and present was when I was running for sixth grade president. So president of the elementary school. And my dad found out you had to give a speech to run for the office. So I wrote a speech out and then my dad said, all right, we'll get up on the, on the stage there and let me hear it. He sat in one of the theater seats and then went ahead and uh, critiqued me uh, very, very diligently and very probably accurately. And that was the beginning of uh, some of the training I had with, uh, with him. And I would say to some degree, it goes back to the uh, Malcolm Gladwell book called Outliers, where he says, if you want to be really good at anything, you need about 10,000 hours. So thanks to my dad and then a lot of other opportunities, that probably gave me a, 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 a foot forward to be able to uh, speak in, in public. It's something I, I enjoy. And mainly I enjoy it because of the opportunity to, to pass on information and also try to inspire an audience. So that's, that's kind of how it all started. And then it's just doing it as much as, as much as possible. Well, you, and, and I may be saying something that's not accurate about your speaking, but you're a storyteller and that's another thing I identify with because I love to do it. And, and I think it's the best way to convey information is through a story. But as I sit there and watch, and I've watched, I guess, three, maybe four of your speeches, it seems like you tell stories as a bridge from one teaching point to the next. Or is it the opposite? Is it you have a teaching point as a bridge from one story to the next? I, I would have to say that it's actually thinking through what are the three main points I want to bring across and then considering the stories that might 
actually fit with that with that point. Stories are always going around in my mind. I have quite a catalog of, uh, of files that I have with stories. Often I'll read a story, not sure how it would be used, but I stick it in a folder and they're, they're by subject. And, and then when I hit that subject, then I'm looking for that story that I can actually uh, associate with whatever that teaching point might, might be. And I, I, my dad again was was the great storyteller, and and I learned a lot about storytelling from from him as well. And then I've always been interested in people who could tell good stories, and you know, some serious, some humorous, some uh, very emotional. And uh, and I think stories are the key to communication. I tell leaders that all the time that somehow we're natural storytellers, but we begin to lose it as we're going up in the in the ranks. And now it's all analytics and PowerPoint and the rest. And I still think people remember stories. I, I, I do too. And, and as men, I think we're, it's even more natural to us to tell stories. I mean, if you go back to, gosh, a hundred years ago when we were still an agrarian society, and especially here where I live in North Alabama, I mean, we didn't get electricity widespread and, you know, until TVA came through in the thirties, uh, really. So there was this culture of telling stories and when men would gather, the stories would come out. And, and so I think it's something really good for men out there that maybe are going to have to do some public speaking or just starting in their career. Don't, don't panic about it. Just tell stories. You'll, you'll be amazed and you can get across very analytical information within the context of a story. Absolutely. And again, I think if you go down to coffee shops today and certainly in past years, you can see those gathering of people. We're natural storytellers. And we just have to pull that back to the more formal context. And I tell people, you know, you can tell stories one on one when you're counseling somebody as a leader or you can tell it to your team of a thousand or whatever it might be. But but again, I'm convinced people remember stories for a, a lot of different reasons. Yeah, I do too. And, and I think as a dad, storytelling is just invaluable to us as we're, as we're raising our kids, whether we're telling them stories from our own experiences or stories that we've learned, uh, that we've heard over the, the years. I mean, I have two daughters, uh, 30 and 24, and they still remember stories that maybe sometimes I don't even remember telling them. Right. All the time. It, 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 I, I find the same thing in my family. And and I, I think the idea of using stories to lead, whether it's in the family or in the workplace or in the community, has, has been ingrained in, in my family. There, there's a book, and I, I don't get any proceeds from it, but I, I really like it. And it's got a marine connection. That's probably part of it. But it's called Tie-Ins for Life. And it comes from the Martial Arts Center of Excellence for the Marine Corps, because the Marine Corps put in a martial arts program a number of years ago. Most people thought it was so Marines would fight even better. But the actual reason for the course was to develop character. And through research, it was very, very clear that if you had a character trait that you wanted to ingrain, if you mentioned that character trait, tied it into a story and some type of physical movement that the chance that that trait would be remembered by the individual was that much greater. So part of the martial arts program for the Marine Corps is actually telling stories. The person that started that center brought all these stories that were used at the martial arts center of excellence and put them in a book and edited them. And then it's now a published book. You can, you can get it on Amazon. But, but here's the interesting part about it is these stories, most of them are not even military stories. Uh, they're, they come from all different types of areas. But when it first came out, I sat down with my family. At that time, we had pretty much everybody at home. And I, would, I, I said, I'm going to read a story a night. And, you know, we'll get through this book. So I read the first story and everyone's just staring at me going, well, read the second one. <laughs> so I read the second one. We, we read the first 10 stories just on the first night. And it just and that was an age range that was probably, you know, 18 to down to five. Yeah. Everyone was enthralled because it was about story. So I think, again, it just emphasizes <laughs> how critical that is when we're trying to bring across information and we're trying to actually also motivate and inspire others as well. Yeah, I can verify the book. You had mentioned it 
uh, in one of your speeches, I guess, or somewhere I saw where you had talked about it, and I immediately bought it because you can never have too many good stories. <laughs> and uh, true, it's it's just it's really really good, and I think again it's um, it's super important as men as we're raising kids, and also in the workplace as a leader. Sometimes we have to give uh, uncomfortable information to those that we're charged with leading. Maybe some people need to make some changes in their life. And and I've always been a big believer in let's uh let's do it as gently as possible and then ratchet it up if if we have to and hopefully we won't have to. And I think one of the greatest ways to do that a lot of what times is with a story. And I'll tell you one a friend of mine's dad was the headmaster at a Christian school and had a basketball coach who uh lost his temper in a basketball game got teed up the next day the headmaster sat him down and said you know i love uh bobby knight do you like him as a as a coach coach and the coach said well of course he's one of the greatest coaches of all time and uh, the headmaster kind of shook his head and said but you know what bobby knight could never coach for me (laughs) made his point never had to say anything else but just a short you know 30 second story did more than an hour of yelling could have done uh, absolutely. You know, I, I, for some reason, I was just reading the story once again of uh, when King David in the in the Bible has this not so great episode in his life where he he commits adultery and then basically murders the the husband trying to get him out of the way. Uh, here, the question is, how does one approach the king to to confront him on on his behavior? And sure enough, Nathan, who ends up doing this to confront David, tells a story. And, and that's the thing that brings David around when he tells this story about the rich man who's got plenty of cows and sheep. And here's this other poor man who just has one little small young, young lamb, this female lamb. And a visitor comes and says to the rich man, I, you know, I, I need to be fed. And the rich man wants to take care of him. So he kills the little lamb. And David immediately reacts of, you know, how improper that was. And he's angry. And Nathan then says, you're, you know, you're the man. And then David clearly sees it. And as I read it, I, I was thinking about if Nathan had taken a different approach where it was more aggressive, whether David actually would have responded properly. So, so again, the story can be used in many, many scenarios, including those where we have to we have to discipline someone or, or we have to confront them about their behavior. Absolutely. Well, let's kind of go back a little bit because you're obviously a, a well-traveled, well-educated, uh, well-spoken and have great grounding. How, what, what made you want to go to the Naval Academy? How did that start? Well, I know this is not the main sport in the state of Alabama, but I was a lacrosse player in, uh, in New York. Long Island was actually one of the hotbeds of lacrosse, continues to, to be. But in my era, there were only three hotbeds, Long Island, upstate New York, and Baltimore. Now it's spread across the country much, much uh, more. But I was actually recruited to play lacrosse at a couple of places, and one of them happened to be the Naval Academy. And uh, when I went down on a visit to the Naval Academy, I was, I was very interested in leadership. Uh, I, I thought this was something I, I would want to apply in my life. And, and there was a really good connection there with the, with the coach, with the players that I had met. But I knew, I knew nothing about the military. Uh, but I made the decision to go ahead and go through the application process. I was, uh, I, I was selected and brought in. But on my very first day, you're not allowed to bring very much with you as you start the induction period into the Naval Academy. I had my lacrosse stick and I had a small bag. And one of the seniors who was in his white uniform greeting all the young high schoolers coming in saw my lacrosse stick and he came over to me and he said, hey, do you play lacrosse? And I thought, oh, I got it made at this place. I mean, I haven't been here more than five minutes, and they're already, you know, enamored that I that I play lacrosse. So I said, oh, I I sure do. Of course, I hadn't learned to say sir yet. <clears throat> I sure do. And he immediately said, every word that comes out of your mouth better end with the word sir. And by the way, I couldn't care less 
that you play lacrosse. Get on that line over there and start getting your, you know, things together. <laughs> He's used more colorful language than that. But but I, I realized on that day that this was not going to just be about lacrosse. And uh, but I was fortunate to go to a to a great place. And and then from there, you can go either Navy or Marine Corps. Seventy five percent about go into the Navy. Twenty five percent go into the Marine Corps and you make your decision or where you'd at least like to go towards the towards the end when you're a senior and and I just I just love what I saw with marine leadership and that really drew me into that into that pathway but I have to admit I went to the Naval Academy primarily to play lacrosse and I had to be educated that that wasn't the main thing so if you're going to the core when you graduate then do you go to officer basic or OCS or how does that work so because you've spent the four years at the Naval Academy, the, the, the sensing is you don't have to go to officer candidate school. You've sort of already done that. But you go to the basic school, TBS. The Marine Corps always kids about it. it's one of the few places that the T of the is part of the acronym. But, you know, Marines <laughs> are a little slow sometimes. But it's TBS. Every Marine officer goes through that, whether they're through ROTC program or they graduate from college and then go to officer candidate school, or they come to the academy, it's kind of the place where there's a leveling ground to say, this is what it means to be a Marine. So that's at Quantico about six months. So after I left the Naval Academy, that was my next place that I went. Okay. So, and you're a pilot, right? I'm actually not. I, 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 I worked in all those Marine aircraft wings and what we call MOTS-1, that Top Gun equivalent. I was actually an aviation ground officer. I was involved in surface-to-air missiles, mm -hmm. uh, command and control, uh, intelligence, and, and then eventually space operations of anti-tactical ballistic missiles. But everything was done out of the cockpit, but always associated with the wing in one way or another. Okay. So is that how you ended up working uh, with the NASA folks as they were examining what happened with the shuttle? Challenger. Well, it, my timing was such that that worked out in that I was selected as a White House fellow under President Reagan. And when you're selected as a fellow, you then put your resume out to the various departments and executive agencies where you might spend a good part of your time besides doing things associated with the White House. And, and one of the places that interests me was, was NASA. This was really before my space uh, experience that okay. I had. And it actually became the foundation to do some of the things on the Marine Corps side. Uh, so I spent a year at, at NASA under Dr. Fletcher, who was the uh, who was the administrator at that time, and and had a chance to, uh, to to get to see a great man lead an organization out of crisis into a successful relaunch of the of the shuttle program. But really, I got to NASA as a Marine officer through the through the White House Fellowship Program. Let's examine that just for a second, because I think that's really important as leaders and as men. How are we going to respond when we're in a crisis? How are we going to lead that organization, whether it's our family, our business, our church, whatever organization we've we've been brought to lead? How are we going to do that? So you watched a man, and for those who are too young to to know this, uh, the shuttle, the space shuttle Challenger accident was just unbelievable people can't if you weren't alive then it just it, it was everything that we were focusing on and some people here and i live here in huntsville alabama marshall space flight center was a part of that and we were all wondering is nasa even going to survive i mean it was that intense in so many ways so what did this gentleman do that caught your attention of leading out of that crisis a whole lot of things. I'll say a couple. One is, is that it was very clear he had to establish a vision that people were going to come around, was going to inspire the entire organization. The, the vision that was articulated was return, return to flight. Now, you, you know, people could say, well, that wasn't that creative. I mean, obviously, that was the, that was the main thing. But words become important. And, and a simplified vision statement was critical at that time. And what a lot of people don't realize about NASA, the most visible part of NASA 
is is manned spaceflight. But NASA has a lot of components to it, which include the science side, the jet propulsion laboratory, looking for you know ET out in the outer rings of space. I mean, NASA is involved in all, but he needed the entire organization to bring a focus on. We've got to get this shuttle flying again because if we don't. The, the chance that NASA is going to survive is, is, is very limited. So he was communicating that vision and the need for everyone to pull together. So I would say that was one thing that was, that was really critical. The second thing is, is he emphasized integrity above everything else. Because I think one of the things NASA was struggling with was that area. And if you look at the history of the decision-making that went into launching challenger on a day that probably it was it was too cold Mm -hmm. Uh, and there were a lot of people that said they shouldn't but the management said hey we got to push ahead because it was a lot of pressure on nasa to get the shuttle flying it had the teacher in space first time a non-astronaut was actually flying so what fletcher emphasized was is that we're going to be a we're going to be an organization of integrity above everything else so if it's going to take a little bit longer because we're going to do it right, then then that's what's that's what's important. And the third thing I saw with him was not sitting behind his desk in Washington, D.C., which is where the NASA headquarters is. He was out to all these different places that NASA has uh, people and, and facilities and really finding out what was going on. I think sometimes leaders sit back a little bit too much thinking they know what's going on when unless you get out. Uh, it's really tough to do that. I, I think our COVID environment of the past nine months or so has challenged leaders to figure out how are they going to do that? How, how are they going to stay connected with people and really understand the, the challenges that they may be facing? Fletcher didn't have that, but, but he had to bring a very diverse workforce together towards one purpose. So this idea of vision, the idea of integrity, and the idea of get out and find out what's really going on, to me, were some of the keys that allowed NASA to refly the shuttle and then move on from there. It was, uh, it really was one of those moments where uh, people say they remember where they were when President Kennedy was assassinated. Well, that was a little before my time. Uh, But I remember where I was when the shuttle disaster happened. Uh, Again, Krista McAuliffe was the first teacher in space, the first civilian. So we're all glued to the television watching the launch. And it was just devastating to the country in a, in a profound way. Uh, and, and to see them come out of it again, I live here. My dad worked in the Apollo program, uh, Mm -hmm. here in Huntsville. We have three schools that are named after the, the Apollo astronauts who died and the Apollo one fire on the launch pad. So, uh, you know, NASA is huge. Of course we're called the rocket city. Right. Uh, so to hear and to hear now what you saw makes sense of what I saw of NASA coming back. Cause it was, it was just remarkable. You know, the other thing I would add going almost back to the storytelling and communications, uh, President Reagan on that 28th of January, 1986, when the Challenger exploded, he was supposed to give the State of the Union address that night. And he changed that to just give a, a talk from the Oval Office about that Challenger accident. And, and this is where he says that these astronauts slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God, but but he told a story within. It's a it's a remarkable speech, and I tell people who I'm helping with their communication ability, watch that speech because it, it captures a lot of what communications is is all about. And of course, Reagan was known as the as the great communicator, but that was one of the highlights I think of his ability to heal a nation at that at that moment. So it's a good one to look up on YouTube and watch for all of us as a reminder of what does communication really look like. Yeah. I had forgotten that it was supposed to be the state of the union, uh, but I do remember the speech and, and I would love to know who wrote the majority of it because it was just <laughs> phenomenal writing. But of course, Reagan was also a trained actor. He, he was. And, and I will tell you because of some of the things I was able to observe during that white house fellowship time, 
there were, as any president or senior leader, you know, they have speech writers mm -hmm. and, and most people thought, oh yeah, they just handed them this stuff. Reagan was very active in changing words and sentences and things. And he had that ability to really know how to make that ultimate connection with people. But he did have some good people that assisted him with that process. But, but I came away realizing how much President Reagan designed the setting, you know, what he wanted behind him, how he wanted everything to work, because he did have, just as you mentioned, D, that, that Hollywood background that, that came in very handy. It did. He had a cadence, uh, and maybe that was what he was doing, the editing on the speeches, because he understood his cadence and his ability uh, to, to give the lines out. Well, one of the things that's always fascinated me uh, – I, I, I've always, I did not serve. So I've always wondered what it was it like as a second Lieutenant going to your first command position. I mean, you're probably 22, 23 years old, maybe, maybe 24 at the outside and you're going in and there's a good chance there's going to be a senior enlisted guy there who is going to be 20 years, your senior more than likely, or could be, and certainly has a lot more experience. How do you go in and lead someone that experienced when you're not? Great question, D. And, and so I, I was 22 when I, uh, when I took over my first, my first platoon of about 42 Marines. I was, uh, I was again fortunate that there was somebody who had invested in my life uh, uh, primarily the last two years of my time at the Naval Academy. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Tom Hemingway. Tom was a Citadel graduate. Uh, in the late 1950s. And he wanted to explain to me the importance of understanding the fundamentals of leadership. So he told me the story when he took her, his first platoon as I was getting prepared to take my first platoon. And he said, Art, let, let, me, let me tell you the scenario that I was taking over. I found out that my platoon sergeant, when I was going to take my platoon, Tom is saying, was a World War II veteran and a Korean War veteran, because this is the late 1950s, so the timing's about right. He said he was a gunnery sergeant, which is seven ranks up in the, in the Marine Corps, so someone who had been around quite a while, but in particular, this World War II experience. And Tom said to me, this gunnery sergeant that was going to be his subordinate, the person working for him, had fought in the Pacific theater of World War II, had, had been at the Battle of Guadalcanal and had been at the Battle of Iwo Jima. And then in Korea, he was part of the Pusan perimeter where Marines held off the North Koreans down at the very south end of Korea as they you know, continued their attack. This same Marine was on the Incheon landing when MacArthur did the strategic hook to try to cut the North Koreans off. And then this same Marine had gone up to the Chosin Reservoir where the Marines fought off the 15 Chinese communist divisions coming into the war. So he had been at some like key battles that Marines talk about forever. And Tom said, so here's this kid coming out of the Citadel and, and I'm now his, his boss. So Tom decided on the first day he better get this over with. So he went to the gunnery sergeant. He said, Gunny, as we call them, I've heard about your background and I stand in awe of what you've done. If I could just share with you my background, I went to college for four years. I went to Quantico, Virginia for six months to learn a little bit about tactics. And I'm now your leader. So my question for you, Gunny, is considering all you've done and how little I've done, why would you follow me? Mm. So this big old gunnery sergeant looked at this lieutenant with probably a little bit of a smirk. And he said, Lieutenant, there's only three questions I'm going to be asking about you. And those other Marines in the platoon, they'll be asking the same question. Qu question number one is, do you know your job or are you striving hard to learn it? We know you don't know very much, but we're going to be watching you. Do you ask questions? Do you listen well? Do you try? Are you willing to fail? Are you willing to pick yourself back up? And then when you learn a whole bunch, are you willing to keep going and learn more? So that's the first question. The second question we're going to ask is, will you make the hard but right decision, even if it costs you personally? We want to know we're following a leader of integrity, even if when you do the right thing, it might cost you 
maybe even your career. We, we don't care. We just want to know we're following a, a leader of integrity. And the third question we're going to ask is, do you care as much about us as you care about yourself? Because we know you care about yourself. That's the default of human nature. But we want to know, are you going to love all of us? Not just the ones you happen to connect with, but everybody in the platoon. So, Lieutenant, those are the three questions. Do you know your job? Are you striving hard to learn it? Will you make the hard but right decision, even if it costs you personally? And do you care as much about us as you care about yourself? You answer those questions well, I guarantee you we'll follow you. So Tom told me that story in 1978, and, uh, and, and it set me on a course of realizing those were the three keys if I was going to be su successful as a platoon commander, no matter how old anyone was or how much experience. Competence, because Tom summarized it for me into three C's, competence, courage, and compassion. He said, that's how you have to lead. So as nervous as I was going into that situation, that's what I had as a foundation, fortunately. And again, I'm very grateful to Tom for taking that time with me to tell me that story. That became my ability to say, okay, those are the questions I have to keep answering every day, and I've got plenty to learn. So that's what it was like for me. Well, two things. Uh, one, uh, you, you answered the question the way I hoped you would because I've heard you tell that story before. Oh, okay. And I love it so much. I wanted to make sure the men heard it. So thank hmm. you so much for telling it. And, and number two is, is that gentleman still alive by any chance? I'm sure he's not. He is not. Yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, well maybe you or somebody can just know that someone else is that, that I'm ripping that off the three C's because I love it as a way to teach men how to be successful in life, no matter what area they find themselves in. And I think Tom, Tom would be honored that his message continues to go out. And I, I've always felt that that was part of my responsibility to him was to share that with, with others, particularly those like at the Naval Academy, these young officers who are, you know, going into a situation. And it's, it's, um, it's pretty humbling when you realize as you stand before those Marines or sailors, you know, you're, you're literally responsible for them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Mm. I mean, that's not the, that's not the norm. And, and when you take that on in a serious way, it, it is a, it is a heavy, uh, it, it is a heavy responsibility. So again, Tom, uh, Tom was good to pass that along to me. Well, and also to pass along the fact to be that self-aware as a young guy too, because sometimes as men, when we're that age and, and I think about you, I mean, you've, you've made it through the Naval Academy, you know, you've played a sport and now you've made it through officer school. Well, that can be kind of heady stuff for a 22, 23 year old to really think that he knows something that he doesn't, you know, and, and one of the famous things is follow those who know that they know not because they're wise. Yeah. <laughs> well, self-awareness is again, to me, a starting place for leaders. Uh, that's why I think reflective time and silent time and uh, time by ourselves is, is so critical to, to really think about, you know, what, what is life about? What, what are my true priorities? What, what are my values? And I don't think we can do that in a in a five minute snippet in between you know video chats or whatever the case may be. It, it, it there's a wonderful uh, speech that was actually given at West Point that's called Solitude and Leadership that uh, gets at this point of how critical it is to to be thoughtful as a leader, and that self awareness is very much at the uh, at the centerpiece of of leadership development. And, and, and again, <laughs> D, when you, when you talked about that pride element that could very easily creep up, you know, I'm a Naval Academy grad, I was a Division I athlete, I'm, I'm now this Marine lieutenant and the rest. I, I won't say that, that I didn't fail sometimes with those qualifications when, when I should have let those completely go. General Dunford, who used to be the Commandant of the Marine Corps for a short period of time and then became the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the senior military officer, and he used to 
say that in all of his speeches to, to young, young officers. Whatever you've done in the past, your Marines really don't care. What they, what they care about is where you are right now. You know, what are you learning? How are you growing? How are you treating people? And again, this area of, of integrity. So it's, it's a great reminder. And, and I, humility to me is the, is the foundational attribute, I would say, of a leader. And I would say it is of a human being as well, but but particularly when I think about leadership, that humility has to be there. And I think if we have it, we're more likely to be self-aware because we're more interested in making sure we stay on the right on the right track. Yeah, and I think where that becomes a problem is for some people, uh, leadership means that you have to know all the answers that uh, that you so that's where the humility goes away right is is they think well whatever the whatever the problem is i have to have the solution and i've always looked at it no i really would hope that everybody on my team is smarter than me yeah. <laughs> that's a great a great philosophy G- general john sattler who's the former distinguished chair of leadership at the naval academy we worked to, he was within the stockdale center he worked for me technically, but he was a retired three-star Marine general and I was a retired Colonel. So I, I treated that relationship very carefully, but he's one of the most humble men uh, on the face of the earth. He's just wonderful. And one of the things he always said is never believe that as you enter into a meeting, that you're the smartest one in the room, because as soon as you do that, you're going to miss these great ideas that that come out. As a matter of fact, I probably should tell this General Sattler story because it's good for men to hear it and, and it ties into this humility. General Sattler was the Marine Expeditionary Force Commander in, in Iraq for part of the Iraq War. Uh, and the Marine Expeditionary Force is the largest element the Marines typically fight in. So he had a whole lot of people under him. He's at this point a three-star general, uh, has a lot of experience, but he, he relates this story in that he, he, they, they have this, this attack that they're going to be doing, an offensive operation, and he's done a lot of the planning for it personally. He's got his staff, but he's been working with them in, in, in a, a, very, uh, a very involved manner. So he now brings together his key commanders and operations officers. He says there's about probably 150 people in this room. And General Sattler is very, very enthusiastic. And he just talks about this operation. This is the greatest thing. I can't believe we put this together. And he's got everyone just charged up and inspired. And, and he said, okay, well, you know, we're, we're executing in, in, in 24 hours, one day. So he walks out. And he runs into this lieutenant colonel. So lieutenant colonel is five ranks up, and, and a and a three star general is nine up in the. So there's a big difference. And there's a picture that was taken of this lieutenant colonel as it turns out as General Sattler walks out. And all I can say is he didn't look very good in uniform. He kind of had a baggy uniform. He had glasses on, but they were tilted. And as it turns out, he was actually a reserve officer who had been called to active duty to serve on this on this staff. So Sattler comes out, and and the uh, and the lieutenant colonel says, uh, "Sir, I'd like I'd like to mention something about your brief that you just gave." And he said, "Yeah, wasn't that wasn't that great? I mean, I'm so excited we're going to do this." And lieutenant colonel said, "Well, sir, I I think there's actually a couple of major problems with the plan, and and here are the three problems." So General Sattler, as he tells a story, he says, I'm thinking to myself, you, you got to be kidding. You're, you're, a, you're a reserve lieutenant colonel with crooked glasses. You look terrible in uniform. And you're telling me something's wrong with this plan that I just told 150 people is the greatest thing. But he said, I was, I was humble enough to step back and say, let me listen to what he says. So he said, repeat what you talked to me about. Well, lieutenant colonel did. General Sattler thought about it. And then he said... You're right. Th- those are those are three areas we need to correct. So again, he had to bring himself in front of 150 people and say, "We've got some planning to do here very quickly. Here's the changes that we need to be thinking about." For a three-star general to do that in combat in front of that many people being corrected to some degree by a, by a junior officer, to me that's where it comes in 
yes, that's how we are supposed to be as leaders. We have to listen, realizing that there's a whole lot of people that can provide us great ideas for the good of the organization. But when it's all about us, we're not going to we're not going to do that because I I know a lot of general officers that that would not have happened. They would have heard that and said, yeah, well, whatever. And, and moved on mm-hmm. to the detriment of the uh, of the combat uh, mission. So anyway, no, I th- that is a perfect example of one of my favorite sayings is I can learn from anybody. Yes, uh, it may not. You know, I can learn good stuff. I can learn bad. I can learn what not to do. I can. You know what I'm saying is just to have that attitude when you're having a conversation with someone of go, OK, what can I learn from this person? I agree completely. Yeah. OK. Well, uh, for the guys listening, it is January 11th and my beloved, uh, Alabama Crimson Tide is about to play for the national championship here in about 30 minutes. And, uh, Art and I actually set this interview up months ago before we even knew we were going to get to have a playoff. So, um, uh, we, we kept it up. So I want to go ahead and jump to the big three. Cause I'm, I can't wait to hear your answers to these. So these are the three questions I ask every guy that comes on the, comes on the show. So the first question is this, what has surprised you the most so far in life? Probably how little I actually control. Uh, I, I am a great believer in vision and objectives and goals. And I, I, I do those things both on the personal side and the professional side, but, but I've learned over the years to hold those a lot looser and realize that I control people and events much, much less than I ever thought that I, I did before. And, and one of my role models for that was, was a guy named uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale. Uh, Admiral Stockdale was a prisoner of war in North Vietnam, uh, was there seven and a half years as the senior naval officer there. So not only was he a POW, but he, he had the lead in the midst of that kind of environment for the seven and a half years in solitary confinement, tortured extensively, uh, just j- just an amazing man. When he got brought back to the United States, released from Hanoi, he would receive the Medal of Honor, the highest decoration for, for bravery in the, in the military. And I met him in 1987. And in, in 1987, uh, we were having a conversation. And whenever you talk to Admiral Stockdale, at some point, you're kind of curious to say, how did, how did you do this? You know, how, mm-hmm. how did you not only survive, but in many ways thrive as a leader and, and then come back and still continue to do many different things? And, and as it turns out, he gave me a quote from a book called The Enchiridion, written by Epictetus in the second century. Uh, Epictetus was a Greek enslaved in Rome, eventually released. And then when he was released, he, he started a school of philosophy and his students actually wrote down his, uh, his, his, his comments. And um, it, the, 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 um, the quote itself is one that Stockdale gave me and, and I, I carry it to this day with me in my calendar book and, and read it often because I think it's, it's very meaningful. And the, and the quote from the Enchiridion goes like this, remember that you're an actor in a drama of such sort as the author chooses. If short, then in a short one, if long, then in a long one. If it be his pleasure that you should enact a poor man or a cripple or a ruler or a private citizen, see that you act it well. For this is your business, to act well the given part, to put but to choose it belongs to another. Now, Stockdale was known as being a Stoic. I'm I'm not a Stoic. Uh, I'm a Christian, and and I think that drives how I think about life. But I believe in what this really said, is that we are not the center of the universe, and, and we're not the master of the universe either. And because of that, I think we can be a little bit more humble as we live our lives to realize we don't pull all the puppet strings and the rest. And D, just to share very quickly, um, of those 10 children, our ninth child, Daniel, was born with a very serious heart defect. And and when he was born, he went right into the neonatal intensive care unit of the uh, Norfolk Children's Hospital, where we were living at the time. And... 
I, I had never been to a NICU. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not sure I even knew what a NICU was, but I began to meet a lot of other families who realized that they weren't the master conductors. They, they were instruments in the orchestra. And, um, and, and we would be there about three weeks, and then Daniel would be in and out of the hospital for a lot of different things. And, and at the age of nine months, they had to do open-heart surgery on him. Uh, which was the way to try to correct this, or he really wasn't going to have much chance beyond that. Unfortunately, he didn't make it, and mm-hmm. uh, and he died at the age of nine months. Uh, and it and it it rocked our world for sure. But it was a great reminder that that we really are instruments in the orchestra, and we're not we're not the master conductor. So I think that surprised me, thinking back more than anything, that I just thought I could plan mm-hmm. out the career make sure my children did this and that. And, and it, it's, it's just not true. We, we, we walk the best we can. Uh, I, I think we aim for certain things, but at the same time, uh, I've learned to hold things a lot looser. So that's what probably has surprised me the most thinking about my upbringing. Rick Warren had one of the greatest opening lines of a book in his, uh, gajillion copies he sold of the purpose-driven life the the opening line of the book is it's not about you right you know and and i think that just carries that on okay question number two who taught you the most about being a man and what did they teach you well it would really start with my dad uh he he was a great role model uh, a great leader at work he was a manufacturing executive never had the opportunity to go to college, worked his way up from being an assembler all the way up to uh, running manufacturing facilities. And, um, and I learned two things, I, I learned so many things, but two things in particular that, that stand out. One was how he treated other people. Uh, if he was talking to the mayor of, of the town we were in, and he was talking to the person that was picking up trash that you you could not differentiate of how he was approaching that person, mm. the respect he showed, the interest that he showed in their lives, uh, and I, I gained a lot from watching him of how he treated other people. Uh, the second one was was his dedication to the family. Uh, I lived in the same place for seventeen years uh, growing up, and a lot of that was because of my dad's decision to forego a lot of opportunities to keep the family in in one place. Now I didn't. I didn't emulate that completely because my wife and I have been married 43 years and we've moved 21 times. So we, we, we have, but the idea that you have to consider the family, not just your own professional pathway uh, was something that, that stuck with me. So he, he taught me, he taught me those pieces. My high school lacrosse coach, coach Lippman was a former Marine and he actually taught me a lot about that subject of humility. He was criticized at that time because we were the only high school that didn't have our names on the back of our uh, on the back of our jerseys. Everybody, all the other high school teams had their names on the back. And Coach Lippman was often asked about that, particularly by parents. Interestingly enough, is why why isn't mm. my son's name on the you know on the jersey? And Coach Lippman would always say, "Well, if he's good enough, everyone will know his name." And that was kind of his way of, <laughs> of talking about, as you just said, it's not about you. Uh, and I, I learned the team piece really from, from Coach Lippman. And then I would move into the Naval Academy and the commandant who was there and Admiral James Winnefeld, I think he taught me how you, you didn't have to put on bravado to prove you were the leader. You, you could be yourself and you could work with people and you could you could be kind and, and humble, and, and you're going to accomplish a whole lot through through that. Uh, you know, I could name name after name, Chaplain Bedingfield at the Naval Academy going on in my first duty station, a guy named Dick Woodward. and But, but all of that is, I, I feel, pointing towards the fact of how critical it is to have these mentors in our lives. Uh, we, we can't be an island. We, we need to find those people that we can look up to, that we can learn. Because And it's, it, I think there's a danger when we have just one of those people, this mentor, mm-hmm. and everything has to be like that person. I, I like to have that breadth that I've been fortunate to have over the years. So it's convinced me how important it is to be a mentor 
and also to continue to look for mentors. And, and I'm not sure I even like the name mentor. It, it can, it can, it, we can picture something that it's not. I like to say to people who I'm quote mentoring, I, I'm a resource for you. Yeah, I, I'm here to encourage you. I, I'm here to listen to you. I'm here for us to learn together. Uh, but but we're going to walk this journey together, not just hey, I have all the answers and I'm going to give them to you and you just do what I say. You know that that is not what I think is critical. But when I look across my timeline. There are these key people along the way. I just mentioned Admiral Stockdale. I meet him in 1987. He, he becomes a mentor to me. He, he becomes someone I, I reached out to learn things. He gave me things to read, et cetera. But, but it hasn't ended. And I, I still look up to a number of other men that, that are important in my life. And I'm making sure that I'm reaching back for others to, to assist, to assist them. So it started with my dad and it's, it's continued. Yeah, I, I think that's so important, especially what you said about having mentors in all the disciplines of your life. So you need to have a money guy. You need to have a family guy. You need to have a work guy, right? That, And you might get lucky and they're all wrapped up into one, but the chances are not great that that's going to happen. So you, you have these men that you check in with when you've got a question that comes up in your life and you go, okay, well, let's go to an expert. I always talk about we want to look – we want to uh, – Spend time with the men who know what's coming around the corner. Sure. You know, or what's over the hill that we don't, that can keep us from wrecking. All right. Last question. So if I could take the DeLorean from back to the future and pull it up in front of your house, uh, there in Charleston and stick you in the driver's seat and punch the date of your 18th birthday and send you back so that you're talking with 18 year old art, the way you and I are talking, what would you tell 18 year old you? Well, Dee, we've, we've talked about it inter, interwoven amongst the conversation, and that's this aspect of humility. I, I really believe with all my heart that I would want to emphasize that to the 18-year-old Athens back there because uh, I, I had much to learn and continue to learn in this uh, area of humility. Probably my favorite quote about humility that I would have passed on to the eight year, 18 year old Athens is, is by Augustine uh, of Hippo. And, and Augustine once said, lay first the foundation of humility. The higher your structure is to be, the deeper must be its foundation. Lay first the foundation of humility. The higher your structure is to be, the deeper must be its foundation. And, and I I didn't know what was down the road of what I might be able to be involved in or accomplished, but I think Augustine was absolutely right, is that I would have wanted to tell that 18-year-old, you need to dig really deep um, because it's going to turn out, you don't know it yet, but but you're going to be able to be in some pretty significant positions of responsibility. And if you don't have that deep foundation, you, you could find yourself in, in, in very in very bad situations mm -hmm. and in trouble because you allow that arrogance to, to come out. So if I only had one thing to tell them, that's exactly what I would have said with that exact quote. <laughs> I think that's great. We, uh, I came out of a ministry background for a while and so got to know a lot of people who were so-called well names or whatever. And, and you kept seeing these pastors and preachers that would implode and almost without fail, it was all because of the same, the, the root cause was the same of all of them. Their talent took them places their character couldn't sustain them. That's a great way of putting it. Yes. You know, they didn't have that great, uh, deep foundation to build on. Art, man, this was so much fun. I appreciate your time so much. And uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. I would look forward to that. And, and I wish your fine Alabama team all the best since the U.S. Naval Academy is not playing in the national championship. I I don't have a strong allegiance to either team, but uh, I do wish your team all the best. Roll Tide. <laughs>